Dogs of the World. It is me, Ellie Krug, with Ellie 2.0 Radio on lovely AM 950. How are you? Happy first Saturday of December 2021. I hope you all had a great uh, Thanksgiving holiday. We are now we are now in that time, that stretch between Thanksgiving and Christmas, the time when young children just can't wait and where adults sprint to get things done. Yep, right? All right, well, we have another great show today. The big interview is with Patrick Kulikin. Uh, he is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer, um, an independent news organization You will that covers local news. You will like that interview a great deal. And in my C block, I'm going to talk about a Minnesota town that just got a national black eye in the biggest possible way over the weekend. So get ready for that. But here in the A block, I want to talk about a person who changed America and probably the world and who probably wasn't an intentional idealist whatsoever and who certainly was an emotionally wounded and torn human. The backdrop here is the history that was unfortunate history that was made this week when the U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments over whether Roe v. Wade should be overturned. I'm talking about the Mississippi abortion case where Mississippi has now legislated uh, that women cannot get abortions um, past 15 weeks of pregnancy. I listened to much of the argument. My, My legal mind had gotten rusty, so from that standpoint, it was exciting for me to hear the back and forth between uh, the, the solicitors arguing the case and uh, Supreme Court justices. That was exciting. However, from a human standpoint, especially now that I finally get to identify as female, the spectacle was frightening as hell. The idea that the Supreme Court might declare a fundamental right, such as the right to personal privacy, to declare that it might be something that should be left up to states' voters to decide about is just downright Orwellian. But right now, we just have to wait because we won't get the court's decision on the Mississippi abortion case until June of next year. Throughout the arguments this week, there was reference to Roe v. Wade. Roe, it was actually Jane Roe, was a pseudonym to protect the identity of the lead plaintiff in that landmark decision, which um, in 1973 was when the Supreme Court recognized a woman's right to choose, a right to abortion up to 24 weeks of pregnancy, based on the idea that there are fundamental rights of privacy that all humans but particularly in the case of abortion, that women enjoy. This led me to thinking about Roe. Who was she? She must have been a true feminist, right? Certainly she had to have wanted to act not only for herself, but also for other women too, right? You would think that. The reality is that at best, Roe was a reluctant idealist, at best. Shortly after the Supreme Court's decision was announced in 1973, a woman named Norma McCorvey, Mick Corvey, stepped forward and identified herself as Jane Roe in Roe v. Wade. And although McCorvey 
clearly wasn't a feminist. Her life story underscores why a woman's right to control her body is so fundamental. Norma McCorvey was born in Shreveport, Louisiana in 1947. Her father was a TV repairman who left the family when Norma was 13 years old. But before that, Norma had been placed into a Catholic boarding school when she was 10 years old. Soon afterward, Norma ran away from the boarding school um, uh, with another girl. I mean, we're talking at 10 years old. Stole some money from a gas station, cash register. And then with that other girl, they were able to travel from Louisiana, um, excuse me, from Texas where the family was living at the time to Oklahoma City. Uh, The girls got caught and from ages 11 to 15, Norma McCorvey was deemed a ward of the state of Texas and confined to the Texas State School for Girls. Once she was released at age 15 from the State School for Girls, she lived with a male cousin who repeatedly raped her. Norma's mother, who had an alcohol problem, believed believed the cousin's denial about the rapes. By the time Norma was 16, she was married to a man seven years uh, older, 16, married to a man 23, that's a whole other discussion we can have about, about children being married, but maybe that's another show. The man was abusive to Norma, and she left him, but at the time, she was pregnant. At age 18, Norma McCorvey uh, gave birth to a daughter who her mother eventually adopted. There's a story about how the mother tricked Norma into signing away her parental rights for this daughter named Melissa. Fast forward a couple years, by 1966, when Norma was 19 years old, she again became pregnant. She placed that baby up for adoption. Two years later, Norma was pregnant for a third time. Now 21 years old, Norma sought an illegal abortion in Texas. Um, By the way, at that time, all abortion was illegal in Texas. Um, and so we're talking, you know, uh, 1968. And so without success, she couldn't find a doctor. Norma then was referred to a Dallas adoption lawyer who eventually put Norma in touch with two attorneys, uh, Linda Coffey and Sarah Weddington, who eventually convinced Norma to make herself the plaintiff in a case to overturn abortion bans across the country. She took on the pseudonym Jane Rowe. And by 1973, we have the Supreme Court's landmark decision. Roe v. Wade. By the way, by, by the way, Wade in Roe v. Wade, Wade was the local district attorney. Of course, um, uh, the Supreme Court's decision, nineteen seventy three, came out came down uh, long after Norma had given birth to baby number three. She placed that baby for adoption as well. Now, one would think that the story ends there, okay? But in Norma's case, things took a dramatic turn. After the Roe v. Wade decision in 1973, for more than a decade, Norma worked uh, you know, in an abortion clinic. And she eventually wrote a book titled I Am Roe, which came out in 1994. So her book comes out about 20 years after the court decision. At a book signing, Norma was approached by an evangelical priest, uh, pastor, and they developed a friendship. And not long after that, Norma renounced her support for abortion, renounced her support for the right to choose, and she became a spokesman, spokesperson, excuse me, for Operation Rescue, anti-abortion group. You may remember that name. 
I don't even know if they're still in business, but but back in the late 90s, they were pretty big. By 1997, Norma had a second book out. So within three years of meeting this evangelical pastor, she she changes courts dramatically. And within three years, she's written a book, another book, One by Love, about being the where she wrote about being the pawn of anti-abortion activists and her, excuse me, being a pawn of, of abortion act, of abortion activists and, uh, and her, and her conversion to Christianity. Okay. So in 90, 97, she's writing, nope, they used me, uh, to get the abortion ban overturned. And by the way, I've been, you know, I, I'm now found uh, um, uh, religion, and uh, and 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 she eventually became a Catholic, and then started taking part in anti-abortion protests and demonstrations. Now, mind you, every time she would do that, okay, when she'd go to a demonstration or when there was some kind of event, her picture and her name would be plastered all over that for anti-abortion people to see. Okay, why were they doing that? Because. Norma McCorvey became the poster child of people who are against abortion. In 19, excuse me, in 2017, Norma McCorvey died of heart failure. She was 69. But still, that's not the end of the story. A year and a half ago, in May of 2020, FX, the FX, you know, network aired a documentary titled AKA Jane Roe which included an interview with Norma shortly before Norma died. In what Norma McCorvey described as a deathbed confession, Norma said that her anti-abortion activism for religious groups had been, quote, all an act, which she did because she was being paid by anti-abortion religious organizations. Norma went on to say, quote, I was the big fish. I think it was a mutual thing. I took their money and they'd put me out in front of the cameras and tell me what to say. Unquote. In that FX interview, Norma added, if a young woman wants to have an abortion, that's no skin off my butt. That's why they call it choice. Unquote. She didn't use the word butt in that quote. I just had to throw that in because of FCC things. As evangelical, uh, an evangelical minister who worked with Norma confirmed that his group had paid Norma to speak out against abortion. It was a money-making operation. The minister said that Norma's photo and name brought in windfalls of money to his organization. Altogether, Norma was paid more than $450,000 by religious groups to speak out against abortion. One other thing about Norma, early in her life, she declared herself a lesbian. After her third child, she started a relationship with Connie Gonzalez. They lived together for 35 years. After converting to Christianity, Norma claimed, claimed her claimed her relationship with Gonzalez was plutonic. Norma would later also say uh, that renouncing her sexuality, okay, was financially motivated because it didn't fit with Christianity. So what do we take from the story of Norma McCorvey? For one, her story of growing up in poverty and addiction reinforces the view that abortion should be legal and available. Otherwise, the cycle of poverty just continues. This, This week... That was a key argument about how abortion allowed women to step out of poverty. You know the statistic, right? One in four women in the U.S. has had an abortion. But Norma's story also shows how entrenched religious political interests felt completely free to use her 
to manipulate manipulate her with money. Question, what else is their money buying today? Could it be a couple Supreme Court justices? Lastly, I'm thinking of Rosa Parks. Back in 1955, the NAACP passed in supporting a 16-year-old pregnant black teen who had refused to give up her seat on a Montgomery bus. The NAACP didn't think that that young woman would be appealing enough to white America. So the NAACP waited until Rosa Parks, married, educated, and very pretty, came along. This was quite opposite from Norma McCorvey. Maybe that was intentional. Or maybe Norma just was willing to be brave when other women were too afraid. Regardless, Norma McCorvey's story is about a human simply trying to survive the human condition. We shall see if her legacy survives. Okay, that's it for our idealist this week. When we come back and do our break, I'm going to speak with Patrick Kulikin of the Minnesota Reformer. Hopefully you like what we're doing. We'll be back in a second. Thanks. We're back. Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950 with me, Ellie Krug. Um, again, uh, read up on uh, Norma McCor- McCorvey and uh, understand about the background on Roe uh, versus Wade. Okay, now for the big interview, um, we have Patrick Kulikin, who is the editor in chief of the Minnesota Reformer. It's an online news magazine. Um, a new online news outlet and organization, and I understand it's Patrick's two-year anniversary today. Patrick, welcome to LE 2.0 Radio. How are you? Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, I'm thrilled to have you. I've never talked with you before, and I don't know a whole lot about the Minnesota Reformer, but I will tell you, um, I love it. Um, and you know, I perused it a, a bit and I just love what all you're covering. So I've got audience members here that probably know nothing about the Minnesota reformer. Can you tell us about the organization? What does it do? How long has it been around? What's your reach? That type of thing. Sure. Um, so we're part of a, uh, uh, umbrella nonprofit called state's newsroom and the insight uh, and the goal of the founders and funders of State's Newsroom uh, was to try to fill in the gaps where uh, there had been the collapse of local and regional uh, journalism. And I think it was a smart, uh, a smart strategy. Uh, a few years ago, there's been a lot of, um, uh, of new national journalism uh, in the last uh, 10, 15 years, sure. outlets like Politico, yep. Vox, um, you know, a lot of even what were once niche publications like The Atlantic are now suddenly have really extraordinary reach, but they were not hitting local um, communities and uh, and state capitals as well. And that, that has really far-reaching repercussions um, because... Uh, although we pay so much attention to national politics, uh, the decisions made at state capitals and city councils um, are often the uh, and school boards are often what are more influential 
in people's daily lives. Um, and and we now know, after the collapse of local radio and, and small newspapers over the past 10, 15 years, we know that has repercussions. Um, there's scholarship on this. Uh, places where uh, local media had been um, hollowed out uh, were more likely to be uh, Trump counties in uh, 2016, and I'm sure we'll find the same. Um, when, once we study, uh, 2020. So, um, state's newsroom, uh, their, their goal was to, to set up in, um, states around the country and focus on state and local politics. And, uh, they got my name. Uh, I think we were, uh, about the 12th state, uh, where they set up. And although we are part of this national network, we do have quite a bit of autonomy. They got me my name from somebody. I had been a Capitol reporter at the Star Tribune, and I was interested in um, in, in their approach and in kind of setting up a and, and doing uh, creating something new here. Um, although there is a vibrant local media market here, uh, I, I thought that there was a place uh, for. For us, because uh, a you have this great potential readership, people who are civically engaged, yep. extremely literate, um, and um, and have this great tradition of progressivism, um, and then b um, to me the the local media scene um, there was a there was a, an edge that was lacking, and um, and that especially. Uh, I think was highlighted when City Pages uh, right. went out of business. Yep, when we lost um, City Pages for sure. Yeah, and so I am not from here, um, and I'm not a Midwesterner, and so um, I was eager to do um, work that was more a bit more confrontational, adversarial, even. <laughs> and, okay, <laughs> and I thought that there was a I thought there was a place for that. Um, and um, and I think that I that's been been turned out to be true. So state's newsroom gives us a, a fairly healthy baseline budget, um, but it's it was originally to to go out and get hire three reporters, um, and just away you go. So we we don't you know we only do a few things. We try to do them well. Um, we focus on what we call enterprise journalism. In other words, this is something that you're not going to be able to get elsewhere um we're not really telling you what happened because everybody is doing that all the time we're kind of telling you we're kind of giving you the the underlying causes um and we focus on sort of like investigations analysis or storytelling and at our best we're all three and then we have commentaries guest commentary and then um i'm currently on paternity leave but usually i would write a daily newsletter my staff has been filling in for me on that um, in which we try to be um, colorful and incisive, uh, share our work, share other media outlets' good work, um, and uh, and that's that's basically all all we're doing. Um, but I think we filled uh, a gap. Yeah, and Patrick, so tell me, how long has the reformer been around? Is it just a couple of years? We launched January. Yeah, we launched January fourteenth of twenty twenty. So uh, about six weeks after I started, um, we were we hit we 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 opened up and it was an amazing time 
to start a news outlet um, because the pandemic, of course, uh, was already stirring in the in the Far East, um, and then had reached our shores, um, you know, a month or two later. Uh, so, you know, I mean, a month, six weeks after we we had office space, um, we suddenly were now working remotely, um, and then of course uh, George Floyd uh, was murdered two months after that. Uh, and, and then, then you had this, uh, you know, kind of crazy historic election and then you had January 6th after that and then the trial. And so it's just, it's been, um, it's been a really intense, uh, period of, of news for us to cover. And, um, I think we've, uh, I think we've met, met the challenge. All right. So Patrick, um, we're going to have to take a break in, in a, uh, a minute and a half or so. But before we do that, um, uh, if people want to, you know, I mean, get on the mailing list for the Minnesota Reformer, how do they do that? Yeah, just go to our website and you'll see, you'll see a button pretty plainly that says subscribe. And then you'll, you'll get our daily newsletter. And that's a really good entry point into all of our work. Um, and, uh, um, and I would certainly recommend that. Um, and because um, it's not just th- that that's a standalone product. I mean, we're going to give you the stories and commentaries that we've we've uh, written. Um, but we're also um, going to kind of give you our take on the news of the day. OK. And and I mean, it's 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 a rich amount of news. So are you inviting to invite Mike, you know, people in on the street to submit stories to submit pieces of course you know um that that you determine whether they're appropriate or not and and written or not or is it just based on content coming from your three reporters we've we've actually developed a a stable full of um i call them independent journalists uh they're basically freelancers with varying levels of expertise and experience um, some folks who have published in national magazines, all the way down to people who are just trying to get into journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm very open to that, uh, to, to inviting people into the process. Um, I think that there's a fanciness um, to big newsrooms. Um, and uh, in terms of kind of putting up guardrails and, and, and barriers, and I, I, I would like us to uh, um, to be a way f- uh, for people to do journalism if they want to. Um, you know, the the reality is that the journalism is just going out and finding out information. Right. And you know, Pat- I'm not Patrick. We got to take I, our I, break. I okay, Patrick, we got to take our break. Sorry to run over you. And when we come back, we'll talk more about that. And I want to really talk about. The nature of independent journalism today in 2021 and going to 22, how it's threatened. We'll be back with you in a second. Uh, listeners have been speaking to Patrick Kulikin, who's the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. When we come back from our break, we'll talk with Patrick Moore. Thanks. And we're back. LD 2.0 Radio on AM 950. Uh, before we took our break, we had started uh, the big interview with Patrick Kulikin, who is the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. It's an online um, 
uh, news source. And uh, um, and Patrick, before we took our break, uh, we started uh, you know talking about some of the uh, some of the challenges that are going on. And I'd like to uh, give me give me what you see as the state of journalism, you know, local journalism in America right now. Is it under attack? Is it going to be able to survive survive the attack? Yeah, local journalism is definitely in crisis, and and that's because the the technology and economic model um, have completely changed uh, for for decades. Um, both uh, newspapers and radio stations really had uh, a monopoly on um, certain advertising, and it created really massive profits that allowed them to uh, spend quite a bit on on news. Um, which created its own problems because, uh, uh, you know, it was advertiser-driven. And, um, you know, I'm sure some of your listeners have read Manufacturing Consent. But um, but there was a fairly strong uh, tradition of, of local news. Um, and now that, because of Craigslist and has taken away all that um, that advertising revenue and, uh, as well as Google and Facebook, uh, local newspapers are closing up shop, and and as are local radio stations, um, and um, and as as a result, people are li- living in these news deserts. On the other hand, there, there's you know certainly bright spots, um, and and I think that states newsroom is one of them where you have mm-hmm. uh, certain philanthropists who say, look, this is a this is a crisis for democracy. If if we cannot, we need an informed citizenry. And so they're stepping up and creating new new sources. Um, certainly, ProPublica is is a great bright spot. It's an investigative site yep. that originally was focused around national investigations, but now has a really significant local component. So um, I think it uh, it's 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 bad, but but there's also recognition that there's a problem, and there's people stepping in and trying to figure it out. Well, and, and uh, you and I off air talked about uh, the challenges about um, local journalism in, in you know rural areas in, the, in in you know so for example in Greater Minnesota and my listeners have heard me talk about this before because um, in Greater Minnesota that's where they are electing the legislators who are coming to St. Paul who are blocking <laughs> a lot of a lot of things around reforming the system deconstructing structural racism what what are you finding out in greater minnesota and are you getting are you getting the kind of co- contributions from greater minnesota that you want versus you know the, i mean here in the twin cities you've got you know a lot of uh, probably a lot of opportunities to get the inside story of things yeah well i mean, one of the things that's hopeful for us is that we we give away our content we have no paywall and and no advertising and we also encourage local publications to republish us and we are finding that outstate newspapers small outstate newspapers are republishing our material so i mean i think that's a good development um you know i think we need we need to, a lot more of it um but it's certainly a, a positive development are you um, a, are you that, able to get in uh, on the ground in in Greater Minnesota so that you're getting those inside stories, or is that proving to be a, had, a challenge because you're yeah, viewed I mean, as a metro, you know, uh, organization? The biggest challenge there's, there's two. 
one was, I, I hope, was just temporary, and that was the pandemic. And that sort of limited our travel. Um, I mean, we are based here in St. Paul because right. we want access to the capital. And our three, now four reporters are all live in the, in the metro area. Um, and the pandemic sort of really, you know, I, I couldn't really ask uh, reporters to go out and put themselves at risk. Um, or sure. put other people at risk. I wasn't going to do that. Um, so that was, that's been one issue with, with outstate. I mean, the other is just resources and, you know, I mean, we did do really good work on like line three up in Northern Minnesota. Um, but to send a reporter up there, you know, it's a day of travel. Um, and then, you know, I lose my small staff. Uh, Now I'm down a person. Um, so resources are an issue, but it's definitely going to be, uh, I think an increasing focus for us. Uh, coming out of the pandemic, um, and, and the pandemic itself is, is a perfect example of why it's so necessary. I mean, counties where you know that had these really low rates of vaccination yep. also had high rates, high rates of hospitalization. Um, you know, in the past six months, and I mean, so much of that is just due to, to misinformation and disinformation mm-hmm. um, that they were getting from local politicians, um, and then it was not counteracted by any local media. Right, right. Well, um, Patrick, again, I'm watching my time. I apologize uh, that, but you know the nature of the beast. Um, I always ask my guests what <clears throat> what makes them or made them an idealist. And I don't know if you had considered that before you and I started communicating but do you do you believe you're idealistic? That you're an idealist, and if so, what got you there? What made you that way? Yeah, I mean, um, idealism as um, can I picture a better world um, and work toward uh, it, and and say that again, sorry, and work towards it, picture it, and work towards yeah, it, yeah, and work towards it, yeah. Uh, I mean. Um, you know, I'm not here on a vision quest, uh, you know, and um, we're not piping in John Lennon's Imagine um, <laughs> into our newsroom. Um, but here's the thing. I I really um, despise bullying and bullies. And, you know, and, and that's really what it comes down to is um, there are people who have power, and usually it's the people who have money. Mm-hmm. And then there are those uh, who don't, and it's it seems to be wildly imbalanced um, in the United States, and we have a mechanism to change that, um, and that's and that's self government, that's democracy, and um, and then my role in that is to inform the public about um, about that that behavior, um, you know, and then and then sort of related to that is just I. I uh, just kind of enjoy asking powerful people impertinent questions. Um, <laughs> All right. You have to do it. Yep. Uh, and it's, you know, we've been given this right uh, by the, 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 the Constitution, and why would we not take advantage of it? And, um, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, it's, it's kind of thrilling um, to be, uh, you know, to, to, to stand sort of toe-to-toe with the governor and know that we are equals as citizens. And um, in, in, in reality, he doesn't have any more power than I do in a certain kind of way. 
Um, and, and that is thrilling to me, and it's something that we all need to recognize, I think, that we are equals and um, that we have a right to, to ask those uh, tough questions and, and to confront. And, um, and so I, I love that. <laughs> well, I think that that, you know, the just viewing things between power and bully and bullying, um, I mean, there is so much of that. Uh, the next segment that after you're done here, I'm going to be speaking about what's gone on in Hastings, uh, Minnesota. Um, with some horrible bullying of a family of a transgender mm-hmm. kid. Well, listen, Patrick, um, I've really uh, enjoyed talking with you, and I wish you the best. Congratulations again on your two-year anniversary as the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. And uh, I just uh, I wish you the best going forward, and I will. I am going to be subscribed uh, to your newsletter, and I look forward to uh, learning more about uh, what's going on in Minnesota. It's been great to be here. Thank you for having me. Thanks so very much. All right, listeners, we've been speaking with Patrick Kulikin, uh, the editor-in-chief of the Minnesota Reformer. Check out the Minnesota Reformer. Go to their website. Go sign up for their uh, uh, daily uh, newsletter. When I come back from the break, you got already a preview of what I'm going to be talking about in the C Block. Talk to you then. All right, we're back. LD 2.0 Radio on AM 950. Uh, please check out the Minnesota Reformer. Um, they are doing incredibly important work. Get on their mailing list. Find out what's going on because it is some really great stories on there. All right, now, um, and as I was talking to Patrick Kulikan, um, you got a foreshadowing of what I was going to talk about here in my C block. So I want to talk about um, Hastings, Minnesota. Uh, that town over the weekend got the biggest black eye that any town in America could get. There was a story on CNN. Uh, I think it came out on Sunday, the 28th of November. Uh, both print story as well as there is at least a six or five or six minute um, a video uh, about uh, Kelsey Waits, her husband Chris, and their two children. Uh, Kelsey was president of the local school board in Hastings, which meant this year she and other board members fielded some tough issues around masking, diversity inclusion topics. You know, you, you've, been, you've been keeping track of what's going on in America with local school boards, right? In the course of campaigning for re-election, um, as, as Kelsey was trying, you know, the campaign season – a face group, Facebook group sprung up in Hastings. It was first um, named Conservative Parents of Hastings, and then uh, it was changed to Concerned Parents of Hastings, probably trying to be a little bit more uh, subdued, uh, sublime about what they were trying to do. Eventually, that group, Concerned Parents of Hastings, began to attack Kelsey. And as they did that, someone in that group, Concerned Parents of Hastings, outed Kelsey's eight-year-old child as transgender. Yes. Kelsey and Chris Waits, wonderful parents, by the way, have an eight-year-old transgender daughter. Soon other parents in this group were concerned parents of Hastings 
were piling on and it got ugly with them, uh, some of them calling the weights child abusers for having a transgender daughter, for allowing this child to be who they are. They called for the weights to be locked up, to be arrested over this. Unbelievable. I have met Kelsey Waits. She is a very nice person. And I've got to tell you, this is horrible. What they have done to her, what they've done to their, her family, what they've done to her children, particularly this eight-year-old transgender girl. Kelsey, as you might expect, uh, lost the election. <laughs> and uh, the CNN story noted that uh, the Waits who had moved to Hastings because they loved the community, they lived in what they called their perfect home, looked like a beautiful home. Um, they're moving out of it. They're going to move away. Um, and the reason for that was that the weights uh, fear for the safety of their transgender child. Uh, not necessarily that, that other kids would do something, okay? But that the parents, some parents might do something to their child. Think about that. Now, those of you who have been listening to this show for a long time or maybe reading my work online in uh, Lavender Magazine or Minnesota Women's Press know that Hastings has shown up on this show before. By the way, Hastings, it's a beautiful town. It's on the Mississippi River, about 35 miles south of the Twin Cities. It's, it's located on rolling hills, wonderful forests. It's, it's a really nice town. But, but back in... Uh, uh, two years ago, November of 2019, actually show number 97 on November 19th, 2019, if you want to make a note of it, I talked about Hastings because earlier that year in 2019, or maybe it was in 2018, it took me time to get into the town, get into the town. Um, uh, several churches and a Christian academy issued a public letter decrying transgender people, they called it transsexualism in our schools, and saying they did not want transgender people in Hastings, that we were a threat, that somehow I, th I think the implication was that we might turn their children into being transgender. So I went to Hastings. I spoke on a cold November night to 140 people in a, in a, in a school auditorium. I talked about what it meant to be transgender. I talked about how all of us, all of us, can be considered other in one way or another. I answered questions from the audience for nearly an hour. Um, many of the people in the audience were from those churches. And when it was done, I had people from those churches come up to me and thank me for being kind for not shaming them, for not yelling at them. Because they expected that that's what I would do. If you know Ellie Krug, you know I don't do that. And I thought that we had made progress in Hastings. I did. The group that brought me in, a thing called Thrive Hastings, as well as the local YMCA, um, they were very pleased with that. And I came back to Hastings a couple of times after that and did some more trainings thought we'd made some progress. As soon as I saw this story about 
Kelsey Waits and her family, I reached back out to my contacts in Hastings and I said, please bring me back. We have more work to do. And as we speak right now, uh, they are working. Um, my contacts in Hastings are working to get a date secured for me to go back to Hastings and speak and attempt some healing in the community. Kelsey Waits, for her part, is starting a new organization called Transparent Alliance. And if you Google Transparent Alliance, I think you will come up with um, – with some information about that. All it essentially says it's a page and it says we're working on our 501c3. If you want to donate, donate here. Um, but she's trying to come up with an organization, create an organization. There are others of those out there, but nonetheless, um, about how you know parents can be advocates for their transgender children, how they can um, protect their, their children around education in the community and things of that nature. So I, wel- I, I welcome that kind of uh, organization and I wish Kelsey the best in getting that up and off the ground. Here's the thing, everyone. Think about this. This is so misguided. You want to beat up on a transgender kid and her parents and all that. I just want to ask you this. What, what if there was a some company, a national company, thinking that they – Considering Hastings, it's down to Hastings and some other place, you know. And uh, but thinking about maybe opening a facility, bringing a hundred people to come in, okay? And you know, good jobs, thirty-five dollar an hour jobs. And this com- you, this story comes out about Hastings. That company's not going to go there because no doubt that company knows it has team members, some of whom may be transgender, have family members transgender or LGBTQ or whatever. It, it, just, it's an, it shows that the community is intolerant. I know that that's not true because I've gone there and there are very, a lot, a lot, a lot of great people in Hastings who are very open and very welcoming to Ellie Krug. But that black eye can set that community back for a decade. That's the price of discrimination. Okay, well, listen, uh, that's all I've got to say. Um, Stay tuned about Hastings. I will let you know. Maybe you'll want to come see me speak. Uh, Big thanks to my uh, my producer, Patrick, also named Patrick. Um, Big thanks to you, my uh, listeners. I really appreciate you tuning in every week. Um, Tell others about this show. Visit my website at elliekrug.com. Follow me on Twitter, at elliekrug. And uh, most of all, go out between now and next Saturday. Go and do something to make the world better. Thanks.